Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I am joined by Katie Talati, head of research at ARCA, a full-service cryptocurrency investment management firm. At ARCA, Katie is responsible for identifying and analyzing investment opportunities for ARCA's hedge fund product. Katie, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm excited to be here. So Katie, what did you do before crypto and and what brought you into the space? Sure. So um, I have a fairly, uh, I guess, uh, unique background for crypto. I know a lot of people start off in the traditional finance space and then make their way to um, digital assets. I actually have more of a venture capital um, investing background. So for Over three years, I actually worked at this one company um, called Crowdfunder. It was an equity crowdfunding platform that raised money for um, startups. So I basically was given exposure to a ton of early stage technology, deals, investment opportunities. Um, And while I was there, I managed their VC fund. So that was kind of the start of my professional investing experience. Um, And it it really grew from there. Um, So while while I was kind of there, I... um, you know, obviously was, as I mentioned, exposed to all these technologies. Um, super early on, I learned about uh, Bitcoin, um, I think in 2014, or maybe 15. But at the time, it was just like, oh, it's this, you know, digital currency, um, it runs on this thing called blockchain. Nobody, nobody knew what it was. <laughs> um, and there weren't like a lot of other like kind of investable things from, I guess, a VC standpoint, there were like wallets or you know, bit wallets to hold Bitcoin. Um, I don't even think I'd heard of Coinbase at that point. But um, so very, very early stage um, and not something I was really considering uh, as an investment. Uh, and then lo and behold, you know, the entire space just completely, um, you know, exploded in 2017, 2018. Uh, so as I'd been working kind of in the startup uh, ecosystem in Los Angeles, um, I actually got to know a lot of uh, people who were, you know, looking at tokenizing their business, uh, they were running, um, you know, crypto projects or working to service uh, participants kind of in the uh, digital asset space. And uh, a lot of them were kind of like turning to me and asking for help since I had a lot of expertise on technology and investing at that point. Um, so I kind of looked through, you know, I was working with a bunch of different projects. Uh, there wasn't anything that, you know, I was super excited about um, until I kind of ended up joining ARCA. Um, and that's really where, uh, you know, I decided to dive headfirst into the digital asset space. So what specifically about ARCA attracted you? And can, can you tell us a little bit more about the firm? Sure. So um, I, I'll, I'll start with the first, uh, your second question about the firm. Um, so ARCA, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, is um, we're an investment management firm. We're focused on the digital asset space. Um, and we really have two sides to our business. We have Arca Labs, which is focused on building blockchain-based products um, using the existing regulatory framework um, to give kind of investors access to this new asset class, but within the kind of com- like comfort and confines of like what already exists. Uh, the second side to our business, which I work on, is our asset management arm, uh, where we have a family of funds that direct that invest directly in digital assets on behalf of our clients. So um, what really attracted me, though, to ARCA kind of over all the other, you know, projects and companies I'd been working with is that the team, um, the founders behind ARCA, um, the three of them uh, hail from, they have traditional Wall Street backgrounds. Um, They had worked in, you know, capital markets for 10, 15, 20 years, I think, uh, between each of them. And uh, they each kind of brought this like different set of expertise to really help build out this firm. So our CEO, Rain Steinberg, he co-founded Wisdom Tree, um, the ETF company early on. So he has experience with building products from scratch, getting them through, you know, like the regulatory approval stage and then distributing them. Then our other co-founder, Phil Liu, is a a legal 
uh, mastermind, I would say. And uh, he's a securities lawyer um, who has also, you know, worked with the SEC on launching a number of product, a number of investment products over the years. And then finally, our chief investment officer, Jeff Dorman, has like 15 years of experience at all these traditional firms that you've probably heard of, Lehman Brothers, Merrill, Citadel. Um, so he really is bringing a capital markets mindset to investing in digital assets. Um, so between the three of them, I just knew that they were really the right combination to bring kind of a pro- le- that level of professionalism to cryptocurrency and digital assets that wasn't there. Um, and they were I knew were the type of team that could really succeed in bringing Arca's products beyond just uh, the cryptocurrency and digital asset uh, community into kind of the more mainstream. So you mentioned before that you had an you know previous previous experience in venture capital. So so what you know were you able to bring over from from VC and and how does that interact with your role today? You know being a head of research at a hedge fund and, and what does that really mean and and how are you interacting with other members of your team? Sure. So um, you know I would say uh, probably like digital assets is really an interesting blend of VC investing. Um, you know, traditional investing. And so I think that my perspective um, was definitely helpful on the team because nobody else had my background. Um, A lot of what I did was, you know, looking at uh, mostly companies that didn't have much of a business at the time. So you're really evaluating things like the team, the total addressable market, the feasibility of the product they were working on, um, which is very similar to about, you know, the evaluation of digital assets today. And I can get into that more later. In terms of kind of what it means to be, you know, the head of research at a hedge fund, it really, uh, it, it, it's, it's a number of things. So, I mean, for me, actually, it's it's much more about the process. Um, so when I, um, I actually started Arca, I was their first employee. Um, so there wasn't anything there. Uh, I joke with them. I was like, okay, well, like, what are we going to do? We're starting this from scratch. So, um, you know, you're kind of, we, we really built a lot of things from the ground up, including our research process, which is, you know, something that we continue to iterate over time. Um, it's ever evolving. So um, really being ahead of research, I would say it's, the focus is kind of on creating a process that's repeatable, creating a process that's going to stand up to a due diligence test from an outside investor, um, and also a process that you know doesn't let anything kind of fall through the cracks. In terms of how I interact with other members of the team, even though I'm the head of research, I still play the role of analyst. I'm also in charge of you know finding new ideas, um, reviewing them, running them through our process, um, and then presenting them to our team for investment, um, and then following up on those ideas through its kind of like life cycle within our fund. Uh, you know, within our team, I'm constantly interacting with trading portfolio managers, the other analysts, um, outside researchers, uh, and, you know, kind of just making sure that I have all the information that I'm communicating all the information that I get to our team so we can, you know, work in unison to, like I said, get the get our get our get the idea from paper into the book um, and then manage it while we own it. So so you mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the unique perspectives that you brought over uh, you know, was your venture background, right? And your ability to do due diligence on early stage, you know, technology companies. So, so what percentage or, or, you know, it doesn't need to be an exact number, but, but what amount of your time now is spent on that early stage due diligence versus, you know, helping to identify actionable trading opportunities of tokens that you've already, you know, kind of diligenced, you know, how, what, what does the split look like mm-hmm. now? And, and how did that look like, you know, when you first started at the firm? Were, were you mostly just doing due diligence at the beginning and, and trying to identify investable assets? I actually, I, I don't know off the top of my head. The thing is, um, it kind of changes, I would say, as the market shifts. Um, you know, there's some months when there's not a lot happening in the market, so to speak, in the sense that a lot of projects go quiet. There is not as many kind of tradable ideas happening. And, you know, the focus becomes much more on like, long, you know, hunkering down on the long term research ideas. Uh, I w- I'd probably say right now, just based on the structure of our team, majority of my time is spent on, um, you know, less of my time is spent on kind of the deep dive due diligence, just because um, I now do have other team members to kind of help me with that part of the uh, process. And I spend more time on kind of like the quick uh, ideas that we kind of have like a fast return around time on. So how does your research process today compare to your process when you first got into crypto or maybe not when you first got into crypto at your previous job, but when you first started at Arca? Sure. So as I kind of mentioned, um, you know, when I started at Arca, I was one of the first employees. And so I really had the ability to, you know, create this research project process from scratch and, you know, kind of use my knowledge and my team members' knowledge to build upon it. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that 
this process specifically is ever evolving. Uh, you know, right. We we're, we're in a really early, we're really early in this asset class. And I think people are still trying to figure out the best way to evaluate these things. In addition to that, there's always new tools out there and there's always new criteria to use for looking at, you know, different digital assets. I would say that, you know, um, the biggest difference with crypto is, you know, it just, it melds so many different investment styles. Um, you're analyzing, you know, investments from different perspectives. Like I mentioned before, when you're looking, you know, when in your venture capital, your focus is really looking at the team, evaluating them. What is their business model? What is the market that they're going after? Uh, what is like, is their product market fit there? Um, when you're looking in traditional markets, you're more looking at the valuation, like how some of these asset trades. Um, and then specifically in crypto, kind of like there, there's this whole new section, which is, you know, oh, well, crypto is a technology at its core. And a lot of the technology is open source. And so we also need to consider and look at the technology as well. Yeah. So when you got into crypto, uh, you know, when you first joined Arca a few years ago, were the projects that you were looking at more early stage? Uh, you know, I think you joined at, at a time when when ICOs were still, you know, I don't want to say a thing because there are definitely still, you know, some, you know, initial currency offerings and, and some, you know, initial exchange offerings. But are the projects that you're looking at now more mature than the projects that you were looking at a few years ago? Is it a mix of projects now? Or is it the same? You know, how, how would you define kind of the scope of the age of projects that Arca or, or you yourself specifically are, are analyzing? Sure. So uh, I would say that, you know, initially when we, you know, started our fund, our strategy was really focused on kind of the liquid uh, tokens that were out there. So we definitely were not focusing on ICOs. Um, and then I think uh, at the time we started, the SEC was just starting to roll out some more guidance. And, it, you know, for us, because we are, well, you know, because we we have worked in the traditional financial space, uh, we were very much aware that ICOs were not really a legal fundraising vehicle and that a lot of these projects were operating outside of the uh, current regulatory framework and were likely to get in trouble. So kind of just as a matter of, you know, just as a matter of we were, you know, being uh, careful, we, we kind of stayed hands off from that that part of the digital assets market. Um, I wouldn't say that it's changed too much. You know, we pretty much look at everything. We are very open-minded about, you know, what we consider investable. I know there are some, you know, tokens that are currently unlisted that they raised from VCs and they plan to come to market at some point, you know, in the next year or two. Uh, like I said, we have a fairly like flexible, open mandate and we try to keep an open mind at looking at, you know, things as long as it kind of fits in um, our research criteria and into our kind of investment themes, then, you know, it can be considered for our book. So I'm definitely eager to jump in on in on on your research techniques and how you do that. But but before we go there, you know, my question is is how do you how do you find new tokens? Like like not not only how do you do due diligence, but but how do you actually identify new assets to trade or invest in or even to do more research on? Sure. So I mean, sourcing comes from all over. Uh, you know, the digital asset community is uh, fairly. Um, you know, kind of tight and everybody is very open. Everyone's willing to talk to each other. Um, so at all times, we're a, we're a six person for, portfolio team. Um, at all times, we are getting, you know, information from all different types of sources. Uh, it could be from OTC desks, from analysts at other funds, um, you know, from Twitter. Uh, we also, you know, we have, um, you know, we're constantly reading and learning about the space. And so, uh, you know, it can kind of come to us organically. It uh it really just depends, but you know the there there is kind of like no one source of um you know or a one place that we're looking at to get ideas from. We are kind of just you know we're taking in information from all different places. And so how how deep are you going in terms of market cap, or are, are there really you know is there really not much that's off limit in terms of your investment mandate and what you guys can actually be looking at? Yeah, I mean as I as I mentioned earlier, we um are like very open um, in terms of kind of like what we look at and we're really looking at more, we're, we're, we're less looking at, you know, okay, like what's the market cap or, you know, is this thing tradable? And we're looking at, does this, does this fit with our investment themes? Is this, a, is this in a sector that we think will succeed? Um, or, you know, do, does this like stand up to the test of our research process? Um, again, it's much more, like I said, we're very process driven and I think that's important for kind of making repeatable, good, like long-term investments. Um, and that's kind of the, uh, the stance that we take or the, um, approach that we take to investing in the asset class. So what, what research techniques were, were, 
you know, was ARCA able to bring over from traditional finance? And I know that, you know, you spoke more about not being from traditional finance and, and being from more of a venture background. You know, what techniques were you personally able, able to bring over? And then what did you have to adapt for the digital currency market? Sure. So, um, like I said, a lot of the projects are very early stage. Um, and so it, it's super close to VC investing. So, um, you know, I've used a lot of the same techniques in terms of kind of like talking to the team, understanding their business, um, more so getting to know um, if, if I can talk to the team, understanding kind of their concerns or what they think will be roadblocks. Um, and then also working, you know, helping them work through it if, if possible. Um, and, you know, kind of an advisory capacity. You know, from the traditional side, I guess, you know, like cap, uh, if, you, if you think about uh, digital assets, there, it's really a melding of liquid VC investing is what some people call it because you're able to trade these assets, but they really are um, so early stage that they would be considered, you know, in the venture capital uh, bucket. So that, that that is kind of like, you know, the things that we bring over um, from, I guess, the traditional world, both VC traditional and, you know, Wall Street traditional world. So what research techniques did the ARCA team bring over from traditional finance? And, and you yourself spoke about having more of a venture than a Wall Street finance background. So so what, what were you able to bring from venture capital into crypto? And then what did you have to adapt for the digital currency market? Sure. So, I mean, I think one, one reason our team um, is so strong is just because we do have kind of like this melding of the two worlds. Um, I would consider a lot of digital assets to be very close to like liquid VC investing. You know, these projects are super early stage, but you're still able to trade them openly for the most part. And um, I think then that, you know, our skill sets kind of come together really well. Um, from my perspective or from my background, a lot of what I focused on was really getting to know the team of, you know, the VC investments that we made or that I made previously. Um, and now it's kind of very similar, understanding the team, the product market fit, um, understanding how they've structured their business um, and their business model and whether that makes sense in the scope of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and then from, you know, the capital, from the uh, traditional finance side, um, the understanding of capital markets and how these liquid investment trade, these liquid investments trade uh, really kind of, you know, dovetails nicely into that. In terms of what we have to adapt, uh, quite a bit. Um, I think probably one of the main things is that um, in, 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 in the digital asset space, there's this myth that like, because the blockchain is open and transparent, all the information is out there. Um, that's definitely not the case. You know, the there's no like general disclosure requirements throughout the industry, which I think is, you know, something that we definitely need to kind of become more professionalized. Um, but as a result, there's just a lot more hands-on research that has to be done and a lot more uh, information sources that you kind of have to look to in order to really fully grasp any of these projects and uh, keep up with them as well. So so what are those information sources that you're looking for? And and so how how do you do due diligence on a token, you know, beyond just, you know, when, when you're in the, the VC realm, I, I presume, you know, it was, you know, getting pitched by a company and going through a data room and due diligence saying that the company, but but how do you actually do that on a token? And are you know, you mentioned you're interacting with the teams. What what types of conversations are you having and, and how are you learning more? Yeah. So um, and this is why, you know, the research process that I mentioned is like something that we're always evolving. Um, in terms of information sources, it's just everything. Um you know, uh, projects, uh, some projects are really transparent. They publish their financials on a monthly or quarterly basis. Um, they're, you know, putting out blog posts every week. They're tweeting all the time. They're engaging with their communities. And a lot of the time projects uh, don't do any of that. Um, and they maybe, you know, don't even send out an annual letter. So um, there is definitely like that, kind of that information asymmetry. But in terms of sources for um, information on specific token projects, you know, it runs the gambit from Twitter to Medium, uh, to blog posts, to Reddit, um, to, you know, one-on-one -on -one chat room, you know, uh, community chat rooms like on Telegram and Discord. Um, and so there's a lot of information out there. And I think that's why it can be, um, you know, it's definitely difficult for newcomers to the asset class and it can be overwhelming at times because you are sifting through so much. In terms of kind of how we diligence a token. Wait, so I want to, I want to, I want to come in on something really quick before we go into the diligencing. 
you know, you mentioned that, you know, newcomers, it, it's very difficult for them to analyze and to understand the space just because there's all of these places, right? Somebody who's, who's, you know, maybe an analyst looking at, you know, Microsoft stock isn't going to be going to Reddit, right? They're not going to be going to Medium. They're not going to be, you know, going off into private, you know, 2000 person Telegram chat room. So do you, do you think that's limiting? Do you think that could potentially limit this asset class? And and do you think that's specific to certain tokens or all tokens? And, and like, you know, my, my question is more of, do you think it's easier for, for traditional investors to come in and just allocate to Bitcoin versus going a lot deeper into these projects like you're able to do because of all your experience in the space? Yeah, no. So it's it's definitely limiting, um, and I think it's one of the biggest. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest in, like hurdles our industry is going to have to overcome. I, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think kind of this one piece of the infrastructure puzzle that's really missing is like a disclosure requirement for projects. Um, because yeah, in the traditional space, if you want to look at Microsoft, you can just pull up their 10K and you can look at all their financial filings and all of their disclosures, and it's in the same format for every single company that's listed on NYSE and Nasdaq. Um, and even all around the world. But in crypto, there's no standardization like that. And so, as I mentioned, the information goes from, you know, there's a ton of information and it's in several different places to there's hardly any information and it's maybe just on their website. So I think that um, that lack of kind of disclosure requirement is going to eventually um, hurt the industry because enough enough professional investors do want to come in and kind of understand some of these assets. They're not going to be able to because you know, they won't have the experience or they won't be able to trust the news sources. So, uh, you know, eventually I hope we move to kind of some sort of, um, you know, uniform uh, disclosure requirement among projects uh, that just kind of holds everyone accountable, but then also allows, you know, real research to kind of be done on the space in a, in a kind of more like uniform approach. So what's your propensity then to invest in an, in an you know, a crypto asset that is making disclosures versus one that is not, you know, do you find that the lack of disclosures, you know, is sometimes unsettling? Uh, and, and is it harder to get buy-in among your team to allocate to an asset that is not being as transparent? Uh, you know, one of the things that I always struggle with is, is knowing what, what is the actual runway for these tokens? If we don't know the wallet addresses of their foundations, how do we know how much capital they have? You know, how, how do we know that they can survive beyond this year and next year? Yeah, no, I mean, that is a great question. Um, it, it really varies. Uh, you know, in general, um, this is a total generalization, by the way, the token projects with larger market caps and bigger teams have more resources to um, be much more open and to provide disclosures and regular updates to their communities about how they're doing. On the flip side, smaller projects that are, you know, 10 person teams or less, and they're you know, mostly focused on building their technology are just not going to be set up to provide those types of disclosures to the general public. Um, so it, it's a it's a case by case basis. Um, it definitely it's not always a red flag, I guess, to see a company hasn't you know put out a ton of information on their blog regularly about like how much money they have and what their runway is. Some do that. And I applaud those that do. Um, the ones that don't, you know, they ha- they might have other reasons to. They might have investors that have asked them not to. Um, they, you know, might be protecting, uh, if they do have like large holdings of Bitcoin and ETH, they might be protecting that from, you know, hackers, for example. So there, there's a lot of reasons that projects may choose not to do that. Um, in general though, you know, I think it's more, if a project isn't kind of being publicly open about what they're doing, um, oh, and some of the time, by the way, there's regulatory reasons they're not, you know, publicly open about every single thing that they're doing too. And, uh, so, you know, if a project isn't, Just because a project also is publishing, you know, all their information out in the wild, that doesn't necessarily uh, signify its quality. It just means that they're being open. So, um, you know, we're first, you know, we're really looking at the quality of a project. Obviously, the more information that's out there, the better. But beyond that, you know, the next step is kind of interacting and getting in touch with the team to understand beyond what's out there, uh, what's going on with each individual project, especially if there's not a lot of um, information, I would say. One of the really great benefits of working in the crypto ecosystem is everybody is very open and willing to talk because it is kind of like a learning through sharing community. And um, because of that, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the CEOs of a lot of projects are, you know, super open to talking to people um, just so they can learn and kind of spread the word about what they're doing. Um, and, and that's kind of also, you know, part of, part of the research process that we undergo is like, if we can, we try to get in touch with, um, you know, 
the uh, the foundation behind the project or the, the team that's working on building it. And just to understand more from their perspective, you know, what's going on, um, you know, any context they can give around, you know, why or why not they have a lot of information out there. And then also kind of like their future plans. And so beyond interacting with the teams, what other ways are you doing due diligence on a project in an industry where there really is a lack of disclosures? What what other data points or sources, you know, that are, you know, publicly available or, you know, that, that you know, that are that's a data company or anything else that, that you're looking at, you know, to, to make an investment? Are, are you looking at blockchain data? Uh, are you looking at, you know, market data, you know, what, what specifically are you looking for? And I, and I know you, you mentioned that volume wasn't something that was particularly interesting, you know, for you guys at this point. Well, so it, it really depends. Um, it actually kind of depends, I think, on like what the project does or what sector they fall into. Um, but, you know, for us, we're definitely, um, you know, kind of looking at and analyzing the data um, or data points coming out of each individual project. Um, it's kind of the best way we can kind of compare them against each other and see who is, you know, quote unquote, outperforming, underperforming, not just based on price, but based on really growth, because that's what a lot of these metrics um, kind of focus on. So um, for just as an example, if you're looking at like the exchange token sector, uh, you know, the data points that you want to be watching are what are their volumes, if their token has a burn mechanism, what, what are their burns looking like? However, if you're looking at a smart contract platform, like in Ethereum, you're looking at more usage based things. So, you know, what are the number of addresses or accounts? How many transactions are happening? What what is the GitHub activity and development process looking like? Um, if you're looking at decentralized finance projects, well, that's a whole other you know uh, animal of data. But you know, similarly, you can look at anything from you know volumes to like percentage staked. So um, you know, we're 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 constantly kind of looking at each individual project and trying to understand what are the data points that are going to define growth and maturation for that project um, and you know what will help us identify the ones that are outperforming versus underperforming on something other than price and I guess I guess the, the question is kind of multifaceted in, in in the last answer that you gave us but how do you define fundamentals for crypto and based off your last answer is that is that different by sector could are the fundamentals for a smart contract token different than the fundamentals from an exchange token? Or are there things that kind of overlap between the different sectors? No, I mean, it is definitely sector by sector. Um, I think that probably the biggest mistake that people who are new to crypto coming in make is that all of crypto is in one bucket. I actually think the better way to think of it is that cryptocurrency and digital assets are simply tokenizing existing businesses and technologies. And they have their own categories, the same as the uh, you know public equities world is. Like you wouldn't look at... You wouldn't compare like Microsoft stock to like NBC or something like that would be comparing a tech company to media. Right. Um, And the same thing is kind of here. Like you wouldn't compare an exchange token to a smart contract platform. They just do completely different things and their business goals are kind of completely different. So, you know, the fundamentals for crypto, I would say there's not really like a definition just yet. Um, But I think that you can probably, you know, give uh, you can probably set parameters based on um, what sector. But, uh, you know, again, as I said, it's the only overarching thing I would say, just based on where we are, um, kind of as a new asset class, is that really we're looking for projects uh, that uh, are showing growth or growth potential. And that's why it's so important to look at each of these data points, which can signify growth. So how do you actually quantify the value of a digital asset? Or is that not what you're doing? Are you looking more for what has growth potential? You know, and, and, you know, you spoke to the fact that, you know, Microsoft is not like NBC, right? You know, the way that people analyze Microsoft's growth and, you know, Microsoft's market cap as a multiple of its earnings is, is not the same as it would be for, for NBC, but there, there, you know, there, there still is PE ratios, right? Both companies still have dividends, right? Mm. They still have earnings that there are th- those similarities and, and ways that, you know, the traditional market has come to quantify the value of these assets. How are you able to do that in digital assets? Or is it something that you don't think the market can can still do yet? And it's more looking for, you know, hey, wh- where is the, the biggest opportunities for growth? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, and this is the question I get all the time for people from the traditional world. They're like, but how do you value it? Um, I mean, the short answer is no, there isn't, there are, there are not a set of valuation principles currently available in crypto the same way there are in traditional finance. There, there's honestly just not enough data. Even Bitcoin itself is only 11 years old. And I think like Frank and Dodd 
had like hundreds of years of, of data that they fed into that they, you know, been able to feed into their different valuation techniques to come up with, um, you know, what is generally accepted and used today. So I, you know, I think we will get there eventually um, in terms of having kind of like a standardized set of valuation models that we can use, whether it's a PE ratio um, or a DCF. But as of now, um, there's no kind of like universally accepted uh, valuation technique that can be used on digital assets. Uh, we have, you know, as a firm, definitely tried to adapt the current value, like what um, existing valuation existing valuation techniques to digital assets. Uh, it, again, it kind of depends on the sector. Uh, for example, you know, it's pretty common that most people will run a discounted cash flow analysis on exchange tokens because these companies have revenues um, that can be modeled out. Uh, however, a smart contract platform is just like a totally different animal. It's very difficult to to model out something like that or understand like kind of what the actual value accrual is. And so, you know, a lot of people look at things like the transactions to the number of users, to the price, to the market cap. So I think eventually we will get to a point where um, we will have a valuation framework uh, that probably blends kind of the traditional finance uh, techniques with new, you know, new ones that we've created ourselves. But we are honestly just not there yet. So on the you know subject of traditional finance and analysis of crypto, you did an interesting research piece on the idea that conferences are actually like the earnings calls for digital assets. Can you go into a bit of depth about that and kind of talk to us, you know, about about the thought process there and the research that you've done? Sure. So I didn't you know talk too much about this, but you know a lot of. Um, uh, what we kind of do too, in addition to doing kind of like real deep dive research is we also do a lot of event investing and a lot of event investing, at least in uh, digital assets is really based on this ability of pattern, like to do pattern recognition. And so for me, what I spend a lot of time doing is uh, kind of looking at different assets and how they react to certain events. And if that kind of pattern has repeated itself. So uh, the piece that you're referring to uh was from last year. Um, I'd actually basically pattern recognition. I had seen a number of really high profile conferences for individual um, projects being put on. And I, I, I was, you know, listening in, seeing what was coming out of these conferences. And it became more and more apparent to me that these conferences were these like huge marketing opportunities for these projects. Um, and it was really their chance to bring together everybody in their community um, to share kind of updates on what was going on, to lay out the roadmap for the year. Um, and to get people kind of really reinvigorated and excited about the project. Um, and not that that's, you know, the exact same thing that, that happens on earnings calls, but the idea, you know, in earnings calls, you bring together your stakeholders, you give them an update on how the company is performing and you, you know, tell them what's next and you allow them to ask questions. And that was essentially what I was seeing happen at all these different conferences. And as a result, obviously, the price of these assets would go up around their conference quite considerably. So uh, once I kind of had seen this pattern and I had this hypothesis, I actually reached out to you, Josh, um, in a cold email because uh, I found I was looking at, I was like, well, how can I quantify this? Um, because the projects I'd actually looked at were, you know, kind of across the spectrum. And I knew that a reflection in uh, kind of market sentiment wasn't going to be reflected in blockchain data or volume. And so I said, hey, like, I think that, you know, I think that these conferences like get people really excited and they might be like earnings calls. Uh, are you able to, you know, do you have any data that can prove this out? Um, and it was pretty funny, actually. You wrote me an email back and you were like, oh, yeah, actually, like uh, the sentiment scores for these uh, projects just like skyrocket around these conferences. I think you have something. So um, that's kind of just one example of how, uh, you know, a lot of the time I, I look for a lot of these patterns that happen. If I identify something, I try to go and see if there's any data I can use to kind of back test it and prove it out. So on that on that same note there, beyond beyond conferences, well, well, actually, quickly, before we get into that, how do you think, you know, this virtual world that we've come into, you know, kind of by accident, how do you think that's going, going to impact the ability of projects to get their messaging out there? And, and you know, you mentioned that these large-scale in-person conferences had correlated with, you know, positive sentiment and with positive asset price movement, but are tokens going to be limited by their their inability to interact with the public in person? You know, I think it's actually, I mean, and this is a question, you know, that I think every business is facing within digital assets and outside digital assets is, uh, you know, as the world has basically gone virtual this year in 2020 and probably will stay majority virtual for the next couple of years, you know, how do we, how do we change our business or how do we iterate? And I think that uh, everyone's still kind of trying to figure it out 
within digital assets and outside. And I think the people who kind of emerge victorious from this uh, will be the ones that, uh, or the businesses that survive are going to be the ones that figure out kind of what is the right recipe or combination of things to do, um, you know, to push their, to drive their business through these, you know, times of no travel, no meeting with people in person. Within digital assets, I haven't honestly seen anything yet. For example, uh, just last week or just last month, we were supposed to have New York Blockchain Week. Um, Consensus, which is like the biggest conference in the digital asset space, was supposed to go on, and that all went virtual. And I think that um, a lot of these events are still kind of in the um, exploratory and testing stage. So you know, even though we're seeing like virtual conferences go on here and there, I think that um, a lot of them are still trying to figure out what is the right combination to make these things successful. So. Uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of the reaction from conferences will be muted compared to last year when we saw a lot of kind of price action happen around them. But I think eventually we will start to see these companies figure out how to best engage their communities from home. But it will definitely be kind of a, an interesting development to watch over the next 12 months. So beyond conferences, what are the other, you know, events and catalysts that you're looking for? And, and something that, I, that I'd love to, you know, learn more about is, is how do you, what do you think the impact in the market has been, you know, on these types of events, you know, now versus a few years ago? I mean, I remember, you know, in, in you know, October, November, December 2017, anytime there was any piece of positive news, like, John McAfee was getting paid $100,000 to tweet out every random, you know, digital asset, right? And, you know, if, if you know, coin market cap got lit, you know, their, their pricing got listed on like a Yahoo Finance, that would pump the price of every asset by 12, 15%. It, it seemed like every little piece of, you know, something that could marginally be construed as positive news had this massive outsized impact on the digital asset market. And it seems like we've, we've mostly moved on on from that, you know, that massive outsized impact. But what what are the events that you're still looking at? Um, and, and what impact have you seen, you know, those had on the market today versus in the past? Sure. Well, I think the market has matured a lot, which is why you're not seeing um, assets react to every tiny positive piece of news and not have outsized returns. Um, and the returns are kind of, you know, uh, uh, commensurate with, uh, you know, what the actual piece of news is. I also think projects are getting a lot smarter about releasing their news and about, um, you know, which news matters to the market. So as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of the event investing is a lot of pattern recognition um, and looking for patterns, at least for us, that are repeatable and that work, you know, and, and, and also there are events that are kind of specific to crypto and then ones that are kind of, you know, ideas that we've brought in from the traditional world, um, you know, Specific to crypto, there's a lot of investable events that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, such as mainnet launches and hard forks um, and staking opportunities and exchange listings. So those are some like kind of the few that we, you know, potentially look at um, for assets. But, um, you know, I think that's why. Um, but they're, they're, these are obviously different events from the, uh, you know, the public equities world of investing. Um, and, the, you know, these are these are very, very specific to the nature of blockchain product projects. In terms of kind of like the other events that we look at, um, we also actually look at a lot of kind of arbitrage opportunities, distressed investment opportunities. You know, those are kind of more what we bring from the traditional world um, in terms of our skill set and looking, you know, kind of looking at and evaluating those. Um, and I'd, we, I'd know, love for you to expand on the distressed opportunities point that you just brought up. Sure. So um, I can't give any specific examples, but um in the traditional world, right, um, distressed investors look for companies that are going through bankruptcies um, or they're having funding issues um, or they have too much debt on their balance sheet. And they basically look at how can we make money off this company that is basically having issues um, and how can we advise them to get themselves out of whatever mess they're in. Um, and so that's kind of like the potential role that we could take as an investor in some of these opportunities. So um, especially, you know, we're two, two and a half years out from like the ICO mania of 2017. There are a lot of projects that have like either, you know, they've burned through their cash or they've, you know, the team has kind of given up on building the project. Um, and so those are the types of opportunities that you can kind of look at in terms of, okay, is this a distressed opportunity? Is there any like value here to be like salvaged from this? Is there any way we can help reinvigorate this project and get them back on track? Um, so that's kind of like, what, you know, distressed investing looks like. It's definitely something that we're still continuing to work and iterate on um, just because this asset class is still fairly, 
new and not, you know, that mature, but I think a lot more of those opportunities will present themselves in the coming years. So what does your time horizon look like on this event-driven investing? And and does it depend on the event specifically? And, and then how does that compare to your more, you know, VC, you know, mindset due diligence investing that you're doing as well? Sure. So, I mean, for our fund, I didn't talk too specifically about our strategy, but really we have um, four buckets of risk within our fund. So we have um, a bucket for like our long-term fundamental deep dive research. We have a bucket for what we call our kind of um, asymmetric upsides. So those are kind of like the more VC bet stuff that's super small, um, you know, that is, you know, the uh, very kind of slightly longer time, hor- uh, t- time horizon. So those two buckets, we look at those investments as, you know, our thesis hopefully will play out over 12 to 36 months. And again, those are kind of like long-term, um, you know, fundamental research-driven ideas. The uh, other bucket of risk is our event investment bucket. Um, and those have a timeline from anywhere from like one month to six months. Um, it depends on the event again um, and kind of all other things, market conditions, timing of when we sourced it. So there's never any like in and out type event driven investing that you guys are doing in terms of like a listing coming in for, for an hour, 20 minutes and 30 minutes and out. Or, or are you doing a bit of that as well? I, I mean, yeah, like there's, um, you know, there's stuff where we can be in and out of a position within a day. Um, and there's stuff that, you know, events that, you know, potentially last three to six months, as I mentioned. So uh, it just, it really depends on kind of the specific uh, scenario. And so one point that I want to hit on that you mentioned earlier that, you know, is not something that a lot of people look at and that that's not something, you know, that I guess you can you know consider being transferable from traditional finances is mainnet launches, right? And these technical Mm -hmm. developments of these projects. So, you know, what, you know, how do you think the market is reacting to these technical developments versus things like partnerships? Um, You know, a lot of what we saw a few years ago were, were these partnerships between, you know, more traditional companies and, and these digital asset projects. And what we've started to notice and what some of the customers that we work with have started to notice is that, technical development seem to be having a much greater impact on the market and the actual technology behind the projects versus just one-off partnerships like, you know, this cryptocurrency will be accepted, you know, for purchases on this store. I mean, are you seeing similar things? You know, what, what is Arca seeing? Um, so yeah, I mean, partnerships, um, are still something I think that drive a lot of value for some of these projects, just because so many of them are early stage that, you know, having partnerships to, um, I, I guess, further spread their business or the adoption of their uh, token, um, you know, are really important. But it, it also depends, you know, not every uh, project kind of needs partnerships um, to be successful, uh, depending on what they're trying to achieve. Um, in terms of mainnet launches, uh, as you kind of mentioned there, I mean, in terms of mainnet launches and the difference between those and partnerships, I guess mainnet launches for the most part are usually those happen around kind of defined and publicly published timelines, which is why as an investable event, a lot of investors can look at it and say, okay, like I know this is happening around this date. So I know when to take my position and exit my position. Um, Partnerships, a lot of the time are kind of announced mostly out of the blue. Um, You know, it's not like you're getting that information ahead of time. And so if, you know, when those happen, um, it's great if you're already holding the asset, but it's unlikely that you are able to react fast enough to buy that asset uh, right as that news comes out. Some people are, um, you know, we're not, for example, like a lot of like algo uh, funds are set up to kind of take advantage of opportunities like that. Our fund is not so much, um, especially since we're kind of more, um, like I mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of our um our fund is really based much more on like kind of research um, process driven um, investments uh, versus just, you know, trading every piece of news. Yeah. So, so my question is, you know, you said that a lot of these mainnet launches are, are on publicly known dates and, you know, we knew the Bitcoin having was coming for, for a long time. Do you think that these technical events become priced into the market before the events occur or afterwards? And, and do you find that some of these events are buy the rumor, sell the news types of events? Uh, you know, what what is your thoughts on that? When, when you look at an upcoming development, are you are you looking at exiting after the development? Or, or are there times where you'll exit before that development actually occurs? 
Um, I mean, it's definitely a case of buy the rumor, sell the news um, a lot of the time. Um, you know, I do think the, the question of whether, you know, price is baked in. I mean, that was definitely tossed around a lot with the Bitcoin having everyone was just like, no, like price is baked in like that. that is, you know, we're not going to see Bitcoin all of a sudden. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and see it at twenty thousand dollars because, uh, you know, everybody has been expecting this having event for well over a year. Um in some cases, um, projects, it depends on, for some of them, they will give a vague date or timeline with some of their, um, technical developments. Like they'll say, okay, well, we think our mainnet launch, we're aiming for Q2. Q2 is like a three month time period. So that's like super broad. Right. And other times they will work the, you know, they'll, they'll give a specific date, but they'll only do it like two weeks before they plan on launching. Um, and it really just depends on a per project basis you know, what they're doing, how far along in their development they are, what their legal team says they can and can't do. And so, uh, you know, there's really no kind of, there's no one size kind of fits all answer to this. Um, it's just going to depend on each individual asset. So once a token's main net is launched and, and that project is live, how are you evaluating the success of these projects and the adoption of these projects? Sure. So um, kind of what I alluded to earlier for each of the investments that we take on long term, we kind of define specific data points or metrics that we need to track in order to ensure that they're kind of uh, growing or, you know, kind of staying within our investment thesis. Um, and again, it just it really depends on the sector or what the you know platform is doing um, or what the project is doing. And, uh, you know, those are, we, we basically, uh, you know, part of our process is we identify three things. I, I, we call it three things to validate the thesis. Um, and either these three things are going to validate or invalidate the thesis. Um, and a lot of the time, uh, the, it is a data-driven answer. It is, you know, are we seeing volumes growing? Um, is there a growth in users? And, or is, uh, what are some of the other ones? Uh, but you get the idea. It's like, we, we ask kind of specific questions that are more related around growth. And we, we track those on a monthly basis uh, and discuss it as a team and really use that as kind of like our way of evaluating, are these, you know, projects staying on track? Are they um, validating our thesis? If it's invalidating the thesis, are there other data points that we can look at to understand exactly what is going on? Or can we reach out to the team and, you know, you know, sometimes they'll like, I'll look at, you know, data and one company will be like, their user growth is a steady 20% every month. And then one month, they're flat or, you know, two months, they, you know, don't get any users and they lose some users. Um, and then, but maybe I reach out and I ask them, Hey, like what, what went on, you know, this last couple of months, your users have just totally dropped off. And they might just say, you know, we, we decided to institute a new signup flow on our product and it didn't work well. And we lost a bunch of users as a result. Uh, that's a pretty common, uh, thing to happen for a tech project. And so, uh, you know, we kind of, we, we basically, we use these, uh, data points to kind of validate, like I said, what we're thinking, but we also try to understand kind of from a qualitative aspect, what might be going on as well and not just go by the data. And so what worries you most about crypto as a researcher to hedge fund? What, what keeps you up at night and what do you think the biggest risks are for the digital asset space? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, there's kind of, there's, there's two aspects to this. So really broadly, like, around the digital asset space and just kind of like the industry that I've chosen to work in, you know, it, it, a lot of it is going to come down to adoption. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, I think it's more relevant now than ever with the current macro environment. But, you know, I think that, you know, if we, if we really want to um, see digital assets um, and cryptocurrency succeed, we need to bring more people into the ecosystem and not have the learning curve be so steep. Um, and those are kind of like the things that worry me that, you know, we won't see this become more mainstream because we won't be able to get over that hurdle. In addition, I think, you know, the other the other thing that like, I guess really worries me is definitely kind of the regulation coupled with that lack of adoption could see, you know, digital assets take much longer to kind of uh, take off. Uh, you know, some parts of the world have been more favorable to digital assets you know, on a regulatory uh, level and, you know, creating frameworks for country, you know, certain countries have created frameworks for businesses to operate, not in a gray area, but, you know, very clear black and white. Um, and some countries haven't taken that approach. And it's been very difficult for those businesses to really flourish and evolve. As a researcher, specifically on a hedge fund, um, you know, 
coming back to kind of the valuation practices, I think having a broadly accepted like set of valuation techniques that can be used on the space, plus um, having uniform disclosure requirements across the industry will be something that allows, uh, you know, investment into digital assets to become a more mainstream occurrence. And so I know this is a question that's asked a little bit too often, but how how do we get mainstream adoption? How do some of these projects and, and protocols, you know, exchange tokens certainly have, have been adopted a lot because these exchanges have a lot of users and, you know, smart contract platforms like Ethereum have a lot built on top of them. But how do these other projects, you know, achieve mainstream adoption? And, and how do you kind of define that? And is it different by project? I mean, it's different by project. I think the biggest the biggest thing I said it and I'll say it again and again, it's just the education curve. Um, it's really steep. It's a really steep learning curve when you start in digital assets. Um, you know, Bitcoin, I think a lot of people can grasp because it's the idea of digital gold. Um, but just the technology aspect is so nuanced and unique that a lot of people uh, who don't have backgrounds in computer science have a lot of trouble understanding, uh, you know, what makes blockchain network secure and how does mining work? And I think that, um, you know, Either, either we have to, uh, you know, create more robust educational resources for people, or we need to, um, or we need to just be educating, educating people, you know, more thoroughly from the get-go. Um, but making people more comfortable with the idea of this technology is probably uh, the biggest uh, kind of hurdle to that mainstream adoption. From projects, though, specifically, I think um, beyond education, it's also the user experience aspect. Um, I know. A lot of projects in their infancy were really focused on making sure that their products just worked um, and not necessarily how easy was it for a user who's not crypto native to come in and uh, use that. You know, there, if you want to use a lot of applications, for example, you have to have a MetaMask wallet set up. You have to already have, you know, some Ethereum or some other digital asset in there. And that's just for some pe- for someone who doesn't know anything about cryptocurrency or digital assets that's just too much. That's just too hard. And they will give up and move on to something else. Uh, so I think, you know, really improving the user experience and kind of like the onboarding process uh, and making it more seamless and more integrated into what currently exists is what's also going to be critical. So something that you mentioned is, you know, for mainstream adoption is is understanding these technologies and understanding the projects. But one thing that I you know, personally have have started to to discuss, and this wasn't my idea, and I can't remember who exactly told it to me, is the fact that, you know, when I first started, I, I tried to help people understand how to analyze these projects. But what I realized is I have a lot of my money in, in you know, ETFs, right, that that like the S&B 500, and they're, they're 500 companies. I'm not due diligencing these companies. I don't know everything about, you know, you know, Apple's earnings and, and revenue and what's driving growth to these companies. Do you think that that you know structured products and, and other offerings that give investors you know access to a lot of projects are are more appropriate than actually you know having individuals try to analyze, understand, and invest in, in, in individual protocols? Yeah. So, well, I mean, full disclosure, I'm considered an active, you know, I work in an actively managed hedge fund. So obviously my, I'm going to tell you Spoon that- Spoon feeding you a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but, you know, working on an actively managed hedge fund, obviously I'm going to say, yes, uh, an actively managed product right now is definitely the way to go in digital assets versus a passive one. You know, the problem with the passive, uh, the problem with passive products right now is just that a lot of them aren't necessarily based on research. They're just like, okay, we're just in, you know, we're taking the top 10 assets by market cap. Um, and the performance of those is not net, like the performance of those top 10 assets is not necessarily the best of all the, you know, available options within digital assets. Um, and so that's why it is necessarily necessary to have an active manager in the space because beyond investing in Bitcoin, um, you know, somebody who is kind of, new and inexperienced uh, can kind of rely on that, you know, a a manager like ARCA to work on their behalf to understand what opportunities exist out there and make the best decisions based on all the information that we have. Um, And, you know, eventually like other asset classes, uh, you know, digital assets might become a place where it is just mostly passive investment products with super low fees. 
but until then, uh, you know, active management is definitely, I think, the way to go. So two final questions. The first is, what has you most excited about crypto? Like mm. what, what, what upcoming developments, technologies, projects, maybe even think it doesn't need to be an actual, you know, protocol, but, you know, what specific companies, events, catalysts have you excited about, you know, the next few years for the space? Definitely. Well, um, you know, like I kind of alluded to earlier, a lot of, um, you know, what we do from a process standpoint is we look at kind of like what sectors we think are going to do well or outperform. Um, and so some of the sectors that I'm really excited about, mostly because I think that they're going to bring that mainstream adoption about that I talked about, um, are gaming, um, sports, and then just the idea of like kind of creating tokenized rewards platforms. Um, and so th those are, you know, kind of pretty broad, but, you know, gaming, um, is definitely like one, one thing within blockchain that is seeing a lot of attention recently. And I think that is going to bring a lot of kind of new, users and, into digital assets in a way that is so what is what what are the the use cases of a token within the gaming world that that has you excited so it varies um you know one of the big use cases right now for gaming is um so on a lot of um and a lot of gaming platforms uh one of the popular things is to trade in-game items but uh, the trading of these in-game items can be restricted uh, depending on, you know, if you're trying to like play one game and you're trading items back and forth, you can't take those items to another game. Um, and so there's a there's a token standard that's been built based on Ethereum called um, ERC-720 and, um, or sorry, ERC-721. And um, it's basically the idea that it's a, a unique token that can't be replicated and it represents, uh, it can represent, you know, one unique item. Um, and so a lot of gaming studios have been working and, and that's called uh, a non-fungible token, basically NFT. And so um, a lot of game studios are working on creating these uh, tradable assets that are basically non-fungible tokens that are unique. You can't duplicate them, but they're completely tradable. So um, a lot of gaming systems are kind of like working on that. And then the idea where you can like trade it across different gaming environments, um, a lot of payment, uh, you know, type uh, interfaces, people are thinking about that. Like I know, for example, like Fortnite, like V bucks is like the really popular way of like paying for things. So having a digital asset representation of that, um, on a blockchain would allow it to like, you know, would allow that system to be kind of open and verifiable. Um, so those are and kind so, of a couple. So of where does the value cases. accrue there? Does it, does the value accrue to Ethereum? If it's an ER7, ERC721 token, wh where, where is the value actually accruing from a protocol standpoint? Um, so that's a tough question. Um, it really depends. I think a lot of people think that the, you know, that Ethereum, like a lot, the, there's something that exists in digital assets called the FAT protocol thesis, which is the idea that the value will accrue to the platforms that underpin these digital asset systems. Um, and that, you know, platforms, for example, like Ethereum will be super valuable because everything is built on top of that. And you need Ethereum to basically run any transaction. Um, I think it, it's really going to depend. Uh, these uh, non-fungible tokens that I mentioned, a lot of them should accrue in value, be value because basically you can liken them to like collectibles because um, they're like these unique one-off items. And so, you know, the same way that um, like baseball cards or um, uh, Nike shoe, you know, Nike limited edition shoes are collectibles. Um, these NFTs, these digital like asset uh, tokens would be, would also um, would also be considered collectible items. So to, to lighten the mood a little bit, and, and I'll give you credit for this question, what is the weirdest <laughs> thing that you did or have done while in quarantine? Okay. And, and uh, just, just so everybody knows, Katie, Katie told me to ask this question, so she must have had something on her mind. <laughs> no, I just, I thought this would be, you know, kind of a funny, <clears throat> a funny question that you could ask all your guests. Um, so uh, no judgment on this, but um, so uh, just for context, I live in Los Angeles, which if you don't know, is um, a really big driving city. Um, there's lots of traffic, but during quarantine, because everybody's been inside and off the road, um, you can actually drive around places at a normal speed um, and get anywhere within 20 minutes, which is incredible. So, uh, you know, one activity that we've been doing uh, that's, you know, considered safe social distancing is getting in the car and driving around. So uh, two of my girlfriends that we were quarantining with were like, hey, yeah, let's go on a drive, uh, you know, up PCH and look at the ocean. And I said, yeah, that sounds fun. 
So um, I actually got in the car with them and uh, I looked behind me and my girlfriend has her cat in the car with us, her, you know, very domesticated house cat that has never been outside. <laughs> um, and she, and she's like, well, we thought we'd bring the cat on the drive with us. Um, so it was pretty funny, but this cat was like super excited to be in this new place. Um, he'd never seen the ocean before. Um, we actually rolled down the window um, to hear the waves because we were like, oh, this would be, you know, very soothing. And he freaked out because he'd never salt, smelled salt water before. Um, so it was pretty funny uh, and interesting. And uh, obviously we had to keep him from like, you know, climbing onto the driver windshield and blocking my friend from uh, being able to see the road. But uh, yeah, that's probably the weirdest thing I've done in quarantine. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining. I really enjoyed the conversation. And um yeah, thanks thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Josh.